Greetings from the humongous. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. I don't know what the hell's in there. It's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Get to the chopper! I'll have what she's having. Hey, Dr. Jones, no time for love! Hey, hey, Sal, how come the brothers on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place, you can do what you want to do. You are nothing but unorganized, grab-assing pieces of amphibian shit! Society made me what I am. That's bullshit. Yeah, that's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. What did the pajamas look like? I don't know. They were jammies. They had Yodas and shit on them. It's a fine line between stupid and clever. He sends one of yours to the hospital. You send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. All right, we're back. I'm Andre Shane. I'm Steve Haskins. And this is film driven. And again, we're not driving, but no. we are outside, uh, sitting in the park, uh, facing other dangers altogether. That's right, a, a journey of the mind. Exactly, exactly. But uh, we're back with our season long discussion of the films of the 1980s, an exciting films of the decade. 80s. Yeah. And uh, today we're going to talk about what is now known as IP. Right. Yeah. IP, what does that stand for, Steve? Intellectual property. Intellectual property. Now, Insane posse with no clowns. No, nah, I don't I think so. But intellectual that. property. Yeah, yeah, and that's a big thing now. And that's a fairly recent term, but the concept's been around for a long time, right? I mean, essentially, IP is, generally speaking, based on, well, often based on some literary characters that are purchased by movie studio of your choice and sure. uh, turned into a series of films right so that the, the, we have that going back to the early days of hollywood and certainly to the golden era where they had ips like sherlock holmes there were like 11 sherlock holmes films they made throughout several studios usually with basil rathbone the wonderful basil rathbone uh, another example i know uh was say the lone ranger the lone ranger is a prime example yeah. it it turned into what ips at that time mo- usually developed into is that a word developed i don't know uh, <laughs> well they they eventually morphed into what what became television serialized yeah. television but before there there were there were serialized movies and those movies like that really represent a real precursor to what we consider franchise or ip filmmaking right yeah. stuff like flash gordon and uh you, you name your serial whether it's zorro or the lone ranger like you were saying there were also some more serious franchises like the thin man uh, yeah. and uh, various other detective stuff like the Falcon, I think, was one with George Sanders that was the popular. Spirit. The Spirit. Yeah. Well, that, that was... I'm not sure if those were films. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's really the same thing. This is where modern franchise filmmaking sort of gets its start. We're not going to talk about The Thin Man too much. No. It was pretty good. William Powell with his wife solving crimes. And that kind of morphed into the first modern franchise or what I think of as the first modern franchise which is the James Bond films uh, the Ian produced 007 films that started in 61 with Dr. No starring Sean Connery and just has kept on going till now and uh, we forget but these movies are usually represent some of the most successful movies of the year of every year they come out well, since and the that's, 60s I mean we should talk a little bit about what 
you know the IP films represent, and it's and this sounds more of an insult than I mean, but in some ways it's like the fast food or the franchise restaurant of movie makers, where the audience kind of knows what you're going to get. Like there's a comfort in that. Absolutely. That, you know, like I, I know these characters. I know what kind of movie these characters are in. You know, if you go see a James Bond movie, it's not all of a sudden going to turn into like a romance movie with no fighting, or it's not going to turn into like a wacky satire comedy. You know, Sometimes, not saying well, unless but, Roger Moore's in it. <laughs> but I guess the point is that you know the audiences know what they're going to get, and yeah. because of that. If the audiences like these characters and these movies are successful, then they're a goldmine for the movie studios because they're like, oh, well, we can crank these things out, and there's a bit of a formula to it. Absolutely. You know, you've got room for innovation, and we'll discuss how certain IP, you know, give the creators a little more leeway of what to do with it. But the point is, you know, all right, this is great. We will make your cheeseburger when you come to our restaurant. You know what that cheeseburger is going to taste like. Everybody wins. So there's minimal surprise, but lots of room for profit. Absolutely. And, and, and uh, it it's really represents the ultimate popular filmmaking, right? It, I mean, it represents a sure. cinema, which is a very populist art form, kind of boiled down to its most basic, churning out a predictable product and making the money. And yeah. that's what it comes down to. And, and of course, that, the whole, you know, the whole fran- world of the franchise really came to its pinnacle in the 80s. Yeah. And, I mean, and for good and ill. I mean, a common complaint these days is people say that everything at the movies, it's a superhero movie and or a sequel. Right. You know, it's like all the big movies, when you would see the movies for the summer, you know, back when we had summer movies, right. um, they're like, ah, oh, there's so many sequels. And people complain that it's unimaginative, that nobody's doing anything original. It's all just like regurgitating, you know, reboots of old popular movies. But the reason they do this is because people keep going. These movies make money. And the 80s, as we're going to discuss, is, yeah, when it really, everything you know about modern sequels and how these IP functions work, it really kind of came to a head in the 80s. They started, I will posit that the 80s are the first decade where people, especially with IP, you know, intellectual property movies, people went into the movie one with the idea that there would be two or three of these right. that from the beginning like the movie was crafted to set up a trilogy right. and that that's a change that you know there, there were obviously there were you know serialized things like the James Bond movies but the James Bond movies are interesting cuz even to this day like occasionally you know there'll be a James Bond movie that seems like a direct sequel to the one before it lately but, you know, that's the, been the case yes but the like 15th James Bond movie you don't necessarily had to have seen you know movies 1 through 13 to yeah. get the gist absolutely and also you know, there were very successful movies that got sequels, like The Godfather or right. Jaws or Cannonball Run. <laughs> but uh, when those movies were made, you know, my understanding is that the movie was made and everyone's like, well, let's see. You know, and no one, Cannonball Run isn't designed to set up Cannonball Run 2. It was just when Cannonball Run was good or made a lot of money, they're like, okay, well, maybe we can make another one. 
Yeah, I, I'm not sure about Cannibal Run there. That, to me, that's a concept <laughs> that can just go on forever. Well, it's about sequels. Though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but you're absolutely right. Just because a film has a sequel doesn't make it a franchise, doesn't necessarily Correct. make it an IP, although you could certainly mess with it. Um, French Connection movies, you know, French Connection, who would have thought that French Connection would have been such a hit and would be an Oscar winner and so on and so forth? Yeah, I mean, they were making a straight-up crime drama. Nobody thought they were making a masterpiece. But it made a ton of money, so they were like, hey, let's make French Connection too. And sure. it's also pretty good, but it's not an IP. It's a, even though actually the character of Popeye Doyle went on to have a TV series in the 80s, and it was actually pretty good. Uh, it starred uh, uh, Ed O'Neill from Married with Children, but ah. I digress. Uh, <laughs> the 80s really perfect the franchise as a concept, and you are right. I mean, when they're, they're going into the, uh, I don't know if Jaws was meant to be a franchise. Do you think it was? I don't think Jaws is meant to be, but Jaws is interesting that Jaws kind of became one. That, you know, Jaws, the original Jaws, was meant to be, that's the end of the movie. They sure. did it, you know, but it was such a gigantic, Jaws exactly, such a gigantic hit, they made a sequel. But then, you know, Jaws 2 just seems like a sequel to the Jaws movie, but yeah. then by the time you get to Jaws 3 and 4, it is very much a franchise. someone trying to milk money out of this property. Right. And uh, those movies also kind of dovetail nicely with, um, you know, the horror movies of the 80s. Oh, absolutely. Are certainly a big part of this whole The IP Halloween thing. and Friday Halloween, the 13th. Friday the 13th, uh, Nightmare on Elm Nightmare Street. Elm yes, all of these movies were like, okay, let's crank some more of these things out. And then Jaws, which didn't start out as like a, uh, one of those type of horror movies, I feel kind of wound up there. That uh, right, know, right. That uh, by the time you get to Jaws three, Jaws three is basically like a slasher film, but with a shark right, instead of right. a killer. Yeah, and but where I think the whole IP materializes is really in the Star Wars. It's got to be. Yeah, it's got to be the Star Wars is really the thing. It's not the Star Wars. The movie's not called the Star <laughs> Wars, right, Steve? No. What can I say? Sorry. Uh, Star Wars comes out in what seventy seven. Seventy seven. Yeah. 80, Empire Strikes Back, and there's not a third one till... 83. 83. Yeah. And then, boom, it yeah. stops. So, but Star Wars really sets the pattern. The, the, yeah. The pattern for what franchise is. And not only with the movies, but this is... I know this story's been told a gazillion times, but it's worth mentioning for our conversation, is one of the things George Lucas did was get the rights to all the merchandising and toys, etc. of right. that movie. Like, right. he took less money from the studio in exchange for that, and then no one saw that coming. Right. Like, no one had ever done that before where you would have a hit movie, but then you, your hit movie leads to action figures, lunch boxes, pillowcases, Cartoons, lamps. TV shows. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that's the thing that, I mean, and that's really where George Lucas made his money, that and he's developed some really good special effects. Right. right. <laughs> but so much so that my understanding is the number one reason George Lucas did not direct The Empire Strikes Back is uh, just because he was too busy with his burgeoning... His yeah, well, his <laughs> empire of, like, you know, he was making, he was building... Skywalker Ranch, his facilities, he had all, yeah. yeah. He just, he was a mogul by that point. From Absolutely. between 77 and 1980, he became, you know, the CEO of this giant corporation. Yeah. And, but that's what everybody else saw that and said, well, wait a minute. 
Like maybe, you know, we can make... Let's think about when we green light a movie, like, well, are, is there a lovable character that could be turned into a stuffed animal? Is there, like, you know, a character that could be spun off into a TV show? Like, all of a sudden, people, it's really at the forefront of their minds for a lot of this stuff. Right, right. And, and of course, George Lucas himself, um, first of all, let me backtrack a little bit. Very smart decision for George Lucas to step out of the director's chair. From what I understand, the the production process of the first Star Wars film was difficult. Yeah. Nobody had faith in the in the project. Nobody thought it was anything beyond just stupid kid sci-fi yeah. and barely that. And uh, nobody took it seriously, including the crew, to some extent. So it was a great validation to George Lucas to have it be such a monster hit. And after that, he was like, you know, I don't need to be fighting battles on the set. I could oversee this whole thing, much like a mogul that you mentioned, yeah. an old Hollywood I mean, it certainly mogul. had his hand in the production. It's not like oh, a my God. George Lucas free production. Well, but, that's my yeah. point. I mean, George Lucas had complete control over production, complete yeah. control. I guarantee you George Lucas would look at the dailies and approve them at the end yeah. of the day. I guarantee you he did that. But he hired another guy to be on the set and argue with people. Yeah. And it worked out great mm -hmm. because that movie is still the crown jewel of the franchise, the second film, Empire Strikes Back. And it just, again, it just kind of set the foundation for a decade full of franchise cinema. Yes. <laughs> for better or worse. You know, yeah. and we're paying for that now to some extent because it really killed what was considered the golden age of Hollywood, which was some very artistically and brilliant but very depressing films of the 70s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All of them, pretty much. Yeah. So, you know, it, 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 it is what it is, but George Lucas really deserves a lot of the credit for what modern franchise IP filmmaking is. Yeah, right? it's true. And it's, yeah, nobody made 10 easy pieces or uh, <laughs> taxi drivers. Right, right. Or cruising or yeah. dog day afternoon two, <laughs> the next robbery. That's right. <laughs> I think that has potential. I don't know. But but George Lucas right there, not only, you know, not to rest on his laurels, instantly out of the gate of the 80s comes out with... Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's yes, right. The, he the starts a whole, new franchise. a whole new franchise. He, he teams up with the Jaws creator and boy genius <laughs> Steven Spielberg yeah. and together they come up with this franchise which is inspired by the James Bond films inspired by the serials from the 40s and um, and is just a gas it doesn't take itself seriously just absolutely puts every penny of its budget on the screen and really changes the way movies are made in my opinion because that movie Raiders of the Lost Ark I remember seeing it in the theaters when I was a kid um uh, for the first time and just being not expecting what I saw. I, I, it was unexpected. I've yeah. never seen anything like that. I remember going to the theater. Uh, Raiders came out on the same day as Superman 2, which is another franchise. Sure. I'd also had its footing in the 70s, but moved into the 80s. So I really wanted to see Superman 2. I saw Superman 2. Then I snuck into the showing of Raiders of Lost, Lost Ark just just for the heck of it, and it was like, it changed my life. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It was incredible, and it was an incredible start of the great franchise because it was, it was literally ready-made ready made to be serialized because it was based on Yeah, serials. based on old serials, and um, 
So much so that when the second Indiana Jones movie came out, mm-hmm. the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the Temple of Doom. Well, it it also changed cinema because that movie is the first movie with a PG-13 rating. Yeah. And what happened was, you know, they submitted that movie to the ratings board and it came back with an R. And they're like, well, we can't have this. You know, we want kids to go see this movie. Right. This can't, we can't have an R. And the ratings board got, you know, they had an argument. Like Spielberg and Lucas would argue with them because they're like, well, I understand you don't run an R, but, you know, you've got a guy, somebody literally pulls a man's heart out of his chest. It's a little right. harsh for, like, a six-year-old. And so they came, like, th- through pressure of Spielberg and Lucas, who by this point, in, like, 1984, were so power. powerful, yep. they got the ratings board to create a new rating, yeah, a yeah. middle rating. Yeah, yeah, pretty smart move, actually. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it worked out great. And, yep. and all of that was just free publicity for the film, sure. right? Because now everybody wanted to see the film. Yeah. I mean, it's, all the kids wanted to see it because, we're like, wait a second, it was supposed to be rated R. Yeah. When you... When I was a kid, Steve, seeing a R-rated movie was where it was at. Yeah. Like, I would try to trick my dad into taking me to R-rated movies, and, and usually it would work. But, but, yeah. But, you know, like, I, but in some cases, it was fairly embarrassing, like Porky's. That yeah. didn't go well. It's a hard uh, one with, with your dad <laughs> next to you, yes. But Conan the Barbarian worked out okay. Yeah. You know, but uh, but but yeah, they they created a new system, and 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 Raiders was such a big hit, uh, and so, so was Superman too. By the way, I mean, so so all of these kind of older, slightly older, just just a couple of years, newborn franchises just started popping up everywhere. So right away, you had, you know you had the Star Trek film started coming out. You got Back to the Future. Alien was instantly serialized and turned into an IP that is still going. Yes. Right? To this day, it's still going. And, of course, we'll talk about what is still viable in this day and age, if anything is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but some it's amazing. So these things, these franchises out of the 80s are still going. I mean, nobody's trying to make French Connection 3. Or yeah. Godfather 4. That's true. Out of these franchises that, even if the original movie was in the 70s, but, you know, the the sequels mostly in the 80s, so we still have, like, the Indiana Jones property is still functional. I mean, like, I mean, they, they still discuss they might make another one. They made a fourth There's one. There's still talk um, about it. Star too. Wars, obviously, is yeah, very Star Wars is Rocky a, is a still industry. going Rocky on. Rocky has morphed into the Creed, Creed films. franchise. But we'll that's see still, what happens. But, but that's still the Rocky around. franchise. Sure. That's still been sure. going on. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, like, with Rocky, what I like about Rocky, like, is the, the, the main aspect of the franchise, I believe, is still Stallone-owned. So... Unlike all these other things that are owned by giant corporations, uh, and even in the case of Lucas, he's a giant corporation too, and he sold. Yeah, of course, he sold the Star Wars. He is Wars a corporation. Yes, to, yeah. <laughs> to, to the thing, but but you essentially, but but I I always kind of root for the underdog, so I root for these smaller franchises, these mini franchises like Rocky that seem to have like a beating heart behind them. James Bond as well. They're fa- kind of a family-owned franchise at this point. The Broccoli's own it, and they just kind of get financing and, yeah. and, and, and team up with studios. But the rest of them have all been like big studio things in spite of the auteurs behind them. So you had the Back to the Future, like I said, Alien stuff, uh, 
Karate Kid. Uh, oh, yeah. You had um, the Road Warrior, the Mad Max franchise, which is kind of a mini franchise as well. It's not a major one. That's an interesting one. Like, I guess it would t- it would fulfill the uh, our our definition of IP, but it, it's yeah. not. Well, I think it only became IP when they when George Miller made the most recent Mad Max movie, Fury Road. Yeah. Then you realize like, that they could move away from the Mel Gibson version of the character and just have this vague central character who's Max and he could be played by different actors. They like they shifted away from a star-driven vehicle to a character-driven vehicle, That's which an is another point. aspect yeah, that, of uh, the franchise of, filmmaking. Of how, yes, you move away from less dependence on stars, even if, like, you know, a lot of these franchises, stars came out of them. Sure. But then, you know, we get to the Marvel movies, and the people in those movies are stars, but then no one expects Marvel to be beholden to these stars. Yeah, so they kill off characters, characters are taken over by other characters and other actors. Yeah. Right? And that's the whole thing. So this thing is designed to move on indefinitely. And and here again, the James Bond movies paved the way for that because, you know, five films in, they switched their leading man and told everybody like, yeah. hey, here, guess what? It's another James Bond and you guys are just going to have to deal with it. And to, you know, varying levels of success. But, you know, so that's that's a big aspect of the the franchise world. But um, well, another thing that happened in the '80s is that, um, like everything else in the '80s, things just got bigger. That's so right. there would be a movie that was successful, and then when they went to make the sequel, everything about it was bigger. You know, the, the budgets are bigger, the explosions are bigger, the pomp and circumstance, the press is bigger. Everything about it is huger. So then you you wind up with some of these franchises when you go back and watch the original one, especially, say, like The Terminator right. or First Blood. If the original one almost seems like a quaint indie movie, even if it wasn't, you know, even if it was a studio film, right. just because compared to the later days where you're like, wow, like that, that movie... Uh, Seems much more like gritty and doesn't wasn't made with the McDonald's toy buy-in like right. from the get-go. Yeah, well, R- Rambo is an interesting case because it really, <laughs> I mean, like the entire concept <laughs> behind the first film is 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 so largely abandoned in the rest of the series. And yeah. The entire it seems like the entire political bend of the story is completely inverted in the sequels. Well, save uh, your Rambo talk because I want to talk about that. We're going to have an a- episode on action movies. Specifically, and there's, there's going to be some Rambo talk. Oh, you know there will. <laughs> but you know, but but the Rambo films are are an intellectual property to the point where there was a recent one again yeah. that was made fairly. Well, recent. like you said, Stallone got he in the '80s got hip to the value of this Absolutely. as well. And the the Rocky franchise, you could argue, started out as you know as a, a very successful single movie, yeah. which what they all? made a sequel to. And even the sequel, you're like, okay. But then, by the time we get into the 80s and Rocky Three, I mean, it's very, he's very much thinking like, okay. It, Blockbuster. Yeah, well, and it's not like, okay, Rocky Three, and then I'm done. He's like, no, I'll make more, I'll keep making yeah, these things right. as long as they keep making money. Yeah, yeah. I'll make Rocky Four, Five, Six, I'll change the title, whatever. Like, Absolutely. I've, I will make Rocky movies as long as I can inject myself with human growth right. hormone and stand up. <laughs> Whatever, whatever works, Steve. I, I don't judge. I don't judge a Stallone. That's 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 beyond my that's beyond my uh, you know uh, 
expertise. But I will say we may be somewhat wrong about the legal details behind specifically the Rocky franchise. It's possible that the Rocky franchise as a, as a property did ch- exchange hands because... I won't hold you to it. The, yeah. Well, you know, again, I like to be relatively yeah. bullshit-free here. So, I, like, it's very, very possible that at this point some studio or some law firm owns the, Rock, yeah. uh, the Rocky franchise and they've sort of morphed that into the, uh, the franchise that is Creed now. Yeah. Goes under the name of Creed, which, again, we'll see how that did. The second Creed, I thought, was pretty lame. Although the first one is excellent. It made a lot of money, though. Yeah. Uh, so that's, yeah, I, I mean, mean who, an important thing with some of these speaking, movies is, yeah. like, we should discuss some about, you know, the quality of these movies. But right. the whole point of the IP thing is that it's all financially driven. Right. And, you know, the quality of the actual movies is for, in many ways beside the point of whether or not these movies get made. Right. Um, I mean, I am a strong believer in if you have a movie that's... If you have an IP movie that's good, it will make more money. Right, you know, like, right. <laughs> but if you have an IP movie that I think is just mediocre to bad, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not financially successful or that they won't make more of them. Right, yeah. right. It, it doesn't, but... Uh, but I'm always surprised, Steve. Like, when I do watch these movies from the 80s, I'm surprised by how solid they are usually. Yeah. You know, even if they got, you know, middling or sometimes shitty reviews back in the day. Um, because, you know, obviously a guy that's going to be a connoisseur of Bergman is not really going to appreciate Star Trek you sure. know, or the, the, as much. Uh, so you, there's a little bit of that lag with the critical community that was still kind of coming out of this glorious era of the artistic 70s and settling into this kind of very populist, like, hey, here's an action film starring Harrison Ford, and let's go, you know? Well, there was still, and we've discussed this in some of our other episodes, one of the great things about the movies of the 80s is there's, there's a level of professionalism even at their mass entertainment right. level, with the entertainment, that, you know, a complaint, people, audiences have kind of seen it, and then you hear these stories from the sets of movies of the 21st century, is some of these big IP movies and action movies, sometimes they start shooting the movie and the script is literally not done. Like, they don't know how the movie right. is going to end, yeah. and the arrogance of the people involved, especially the studio, is like, well, there's too much money to be made. We don't have time to, like, really wait until the script is done. Right. We want to roll because the number one thing we care about is that, you know, the newborn, the release date. The newborn movie has to make its release date. Right. And everything else is secondary to that. Like, who gives a shit? We'll figure it out on the fly. And then what winds up sometimes, you get some very disjointed product that you can tell that this script was, like, assembled. None of it makes any sense. And in the 80s, like, they at least still, you know, like, the plot lines, you're like, okay, I can understand this. This is good. There's some jokes in. They hire real screenwriters. And some and of them have a heart, and some of them some have of them real, real emotion. And, uh, and, and it works, you know? I mean, like, Empire Strikes Back is an emotional friggin' movie, man. Yeah. It's a super emotional film. You're invested in the characters. Right now, that's an art form that seems to be getting lost. Yeah. And, and, and again, my thesis for this 80s omnibus that we're doing this season is essentially the 80s kind of generally spawned a lot of the stuff that's killing cinema right now. So the 80s bear some responsibility for 
what we're where we're at now. And and that includes the situation with the current COVID thing, where literally nobody cares, where 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 cinematic releases are irrelevant. Nobody cares about smaller films. All people care about are big tentpole Hollywood product. That's it. And once you take that away, the entire exhibition, theatrical exhibition industry goes in the toilet. I don't want to go on too much of a of a segue on that, but I will say that as a person who loves 80s cinema, I, I still think that the 80s did it really well. <laughs> there was yeah. just excellent, excellent, consistent, occasionally brilliant franchises that kind of came to the fore in the 80s. And the fact that Hollywood is still trying to milk these franchises says something about their durability, even if it's the success ratio is weak. Yeah, well, and that's they. Sometimes they learn the wrong lessons. The studios where they learned about the value of IP and just cranking things out, but then not taking the time to actually make an entertaining movie. And I always think about, you know, there was a Godzilla in the '90s. That's mm-hmm. an example. Like that movie came out, it got a lot of hype. Uh, it made money, but like, I mean, that's not a beloved movie. Like mm-hmm. even the people who went opening weekend and saw it and had like a nice night out at the theater, like. Nobody lists that Godzilla as their favorite movie. Right. Nobody's like, you know what was a great fucking movie, that Godzilla of the 90s. <laughs> that never happens. But then later on, say, when they made the first Spider-Man with Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movie, I mean, like, that movie's good. It's not like a masterpiece or anything. But the level of craft and care in that, and so then people liked, like, they actually enjoyed the movie. Right, it right. wasn't just complete, like, here's my dollar exchange for this hyped product. Right. And so then the end result is the movie makes even more money, you know, because it's not just the newest, craziest Hollywood product that, you know, like, okay, it's been hyped to me, I should go. And people go to that, and you can make your money, and if you're cynical, and that's all you care about. But it's like, just take the time to, like, put a little more care into these movies. And in the 80s, that was the default mode. And that's why we we discussed that when you see a movie like that now, like, just a solid Hollywood movie... Yeah, like Temple well, it, of Doom or something you, like that. Yeah, or well, not even Temple of Doom. I'm talking about now when you see oh, something now. like Ford versus Ferrari that you right. almost like overrate it. Right. Because it just seems like a throwback to like, remember when you could just go see a movie and like, okay, the movie's well-crafted mm-hmm. and entertaining. It was what we consider real movies. It's yeah. almost like the IP stuff are not real movies anymore. It's almost like it's something else yeah. altogether. It's interesting. It's interesting how that's become. And, and, and again, I... I you know, I'll, I'll punch that. That's not particularly great for the art form as a whole. Uh, but boy, when we were kids, we sure did love those franchises sure. in the 80s. Like what, if you were to, I don't know, I, I, I feel I've taken you by surprise with this question in the past. But like, w- w- have you thought of what your favorite, like top three franchises are out of the 80s and maybe i don't want to make it more difficult for you but let's take the ones that kind of had the roots earlier off the table you know like I'll, i won't talk about the james bond movies oh, maybe sure. we should just not talk about star wars because it did the first film did come out way earlier in the 70s and you know kind of changed the cinema yeah i, I mean who star- am i to make rules come on <laughs> whatever you want well buddy. my favorite i mean I love the Star Wars movies, but I mean, I grew up so much in the pocket of Star Wars. You know, like the first movie came out the year I was born. Some of my literally 
earliest memories are of Star Wars movies to the point where it's almost hard for me, even as an adult, to critically evaluate the first three Star Wars movies because that's a little bit like evaluating your childhood and putting it. So I'm very wrapped up into the first Star Wars movies, but they're all great. But in terms of my favorite of the 80s, I mean, I love the obvious, the Indiana Jones movies are great. But the other two, I will say, um, I love this. I'm not the world's biggest Star Trek guy. I am not involved in that world. I don't haven't seen all that much of the TV shows. I loved the Star Trek movies of the 80s. Uh, those yeah. are far and away my favorite of the Star Trek movies. You know, I, two, three, and four are all movies of the 80s, and uh, those are all really well crafted, entertaining. Uh, we discussed on our uh, on our sci-fi episode about how Star Trek Four is about as crowd-pleasing a movie as you can get, that both yeah. of us had experiences coming out of that theater and being like, man, that everyone in that theater just had a great fucking time. Right, um, absolutely. The other one I will say, which is interesting to me, is the Alien franchise. Yeah, yeah. Because what I love about the Alien, and I don't love all the Alien movies. Oh, like gosh, he, no. They're real... Well, they've killed that franchise. Well, not, not, it's eh, not killed. It's very wound. up and down. But it's a franchise that, and I think they kind of stumbled into this with the sequel, but... They've now made it a point that for the Alien franchise, the, I guess, 20th Century Fox or whoever controls those movies are open to letting, like, the directors play a little bit more. And also hiring, you know, kind of up-and-coming unusual directors. You know, like Ridley Scott made the first one, but then the second one they hired James Cameron, who was, like, Mm -hmm. hot off the heels of Terminator, but, you know, like a hot young director at that point. Up-and-comer. Yeah, you know, for the third movie... Which I know was in the '90s, but you know they hired David Fincher. As what his, year did that third one come I out? I mean, like it was 90, like '92, '91, early 90s. Yeah, but they, you know, had very hot uh, video music video director. Yeah, they hired him. Fincher. They gave him the keys right, to the franchise. Absolutely. For the fourth one, they hired uh, the French. The French. You know? and, uh, yeah. And yeah, that movie's guys. not that great. But the point is, it's I, I appreciate the Alien franchise's yeah. commitment yeah. to like, you know what? Let's hire like an interesting young director and see what they do. Yeah, I, I don't know how much that has to do with just individuals that happen to be working in the, at the studio at that time. Yeah. But you're, you're right. They, that, that's a severely played with franchise. Of all the franchises, it's the one where they've really just, they seem to not know what to do with it. And they're yeah. open about it. They're just like, we don't but know what the hell to do it. with yeah. this. That's... So we're just going to, we're going to do some crazy shit. We're going to do a prequel that, that tells the story of humanity. And then we're going to do this horror film that's like really weird. And yeah. there's robots. And it's just like, all right, whatever. I, it it's not been super successful in my opinion, uh, so it's faltered as a franchise. But they all have really. I mean, none of them have been. Star Trek has basically rebooted its franchise. Yeah. Uh, but um, but that that's the thing. Uh, that's, what so you know? I give my whole spiel. What are your favorite IP of the eighties? Anything I, new or yeah? I haven't thought of anything. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Steve, I love the Star Trek films. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Star Trek 1 came out in 79, and it was slow, and it didn't seem to understand the Star Trek universe or the dynamic of the old show. And then Star Trek 2 came out. This guy, Harvey Bennett, took over the... And here, again, is a case of an individual kind of taking reins over the whole franchise. Yeah. So this Harvey Bennett guy, television producer, fairly wide, wide wide-ranging material background, takes over the Star Trek movie franchise with Paramount, and, uh, and he seems to just... 
either luck into understanding what Star Trek's about or just or is really some kind of a genius, truly, truly digs and gets what people want to see from Star Trek. And you're absolutely right. Star Trek II, Star Trek III, Star Trek IV, excellent. Yeah. Star Trek V, they let William Shatner direct. <laughs> that didn't go so well. Uh, but Star Trek VI is good. Um, again, just a very consistent consistent series of films. And that's really my my thing with franchises, is how consistent they are. Yeah, and I mean, a big thing about... IP films, and it really just goes completely against the whole auteur theory, which was as really huge right. in the 70s. Right. That, you know, you just let a very creative director, like the director's the main person responsible for the movie. It's the director, like if you get a good director, that's the difference between, you know, a, a good movie and a bad movie. And that still might be true in terms of, like, quality. Um, but... IP films, the directors are not like the, it's the they're not the main brain t- trust of uh, you know shepherding the IP films along. Right, it's almost like it's the concept is the star really yeah. of, of of what franchise filmmaking is, and there's a brilliance to it from a commercial perspective, but because it it does put the auteur in the back seat a little bit, not in every case. Now, there's there's definite exceptions, like all the Indiana Joneses have been directed by Steven Spielberg. Correct. So. You can say that Spielberg, Lucas are the auteurs of Indiana Jones, you know, the 80s, but but usually that's not the case. But yeah, even Star Wars, I mean, you know, George Lucas, you know, obviously yeah. oversaw and, you know, had yeah. the direction of where it was going, but you know, only directed one of those first three movies. Right, right, right. You, you can say that George Lucas has been uh, sort of the the god of the Star Wars universe for about six pictures, and then he sold it off to Disney, and now we have a, you know, very uneven landscape where they're just printing money, basically, yeah. off the off the IP, the intellectual property. Now they're in TV and blah, 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 and that's really the case with everything now. Everything is becoming amorphosized along larger media landscape. It's not just about movies. It used to be just about movies, right? Star Wars didn't want to do television. Star Trek had, of course, started on television and kept going on television. But there were the Star Trek movies with the old crew that that were going to make a certain amount of money and were very different from what was going on in television, right? So, But with Star Wars, it was like Star Wars is what you had. Yeah. It was, you had to go to the, the to the picture to catch Star Wars, and again, Star Wars. Coming back to my point of like what I love about my favorite franchises is the consistency. Star Wars movies have been consistently good. Indiana Jones movies, I love them. I mean, that's 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 really my favorite franchise out of the '80s is the Indiana Jones. Yeah. Ones. Maybe because of a consistent auteur voice behind it, even though other people could direct Indiana Jones movies, Steve, I don't feel like Spielberg has the key to the concept. No, it does seem possible. I think it's very possible to get another director into the Indiana Jones saddle and possibly be better and fresher. I don't know. It's possible. I mean, I it, maybe we'll find out at some point in the near future. Maybe not. But Indy, but Indy definitely is at the top of my list. And the other one I really like out of the 80s, which is kind of of the 80s to a large degree, is the Back to the Future franchise. I think that's very consistent. I know... Most people obviously love the first film more than the uh, the second and the third film, but I do think that the second and the third film are very good. 
in and of themselves and are very different from the first film. Well, that's an interesting case. I don't know if that meets our definition of, like, IP. Are those just three films? Because, I mean, no one's ever tried to continue the Back to the Future franchise after that. No one's ever tried to, like... I kind of like the idea that one of the hallmarks of an IP is um, not only spanning decades, but then, you know, not afraid to change up some of the actors. I guess they don't all foot that thing. But Back to the Future, I don't... I mean, I the know. main actors are the same, for sure. Yeah, that's basically Michael J. Fox and uh, Christopher Lloyd. I mean, that's that's your main. Yeah, but I mean, main so you, you think these qualify as IP films? It's a good question. I, you know, I know we talked a little bit about earlier about how just because a movie has sequels doesn't make it an IP. Yeah. And you could make a case that Back to the Future is just kind of a trilogy. Yeah. Trilogy of films, and they do seem to imply that, but. I don't know. It's hard for me not to think of it as an IP. It's certainly a big event filmmaking. I mean, they did have Back to the Future. I mean, it was heavily merchandised. Sure. I think they had Back to the Future uh, action figures, and they had actually. I mean, they, they had Back to the Future cartoons and TV TV programs. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I don't know. It's right on the cusp. But I still, I'm gonna lump it in in my world, man. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lump lump it in because I, because of the, the consistency that is Back to the Future. What did I'm gonna throw a curveball at you? What's your favorite? Um, I guess like a failed IP, like something that uh, was kind of designed to maybe have sequels and it just didn't work. Like uh, either the first one bombed or. The second one bombed, and it just never quite took off the way people thought. Well, it I mean, they're all fa- they all fail eventually. I don't know. That's a, that is a little bit of a curveball. I mean, there was there was definitely some that seemed like they could go, they could be kind of fun. You know, I thought like the Fifth Element had aspects that could be parlayed into other films. I thought that world was interesting. Um, Mad Max. You know, I don't know if it's failed, but it was certainly stalled for a very long time. Yeah. And and, and the, the last one disappointed a lot of people. You know, I mean, I guess anything that doesn't, um, doesn't have a lot of life or something that kind of peters out in the second and third film. Uh, Karate Kid was a pretty good franchise. I know that. That was an unexpected was, one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, you th- I think Karate Kid could have been expanded into other, and it was. They tried to have a female Karate Kid. You know, they carried it through, but really anybody, nobody cares about the second Karate Kid, right? No, I mean, it's got some fun elements. Well, and clearly, and, we're not listening to that Peter Cetera song on repeat in elementary <laughs> school, so I don't, I don't know what you mean by nobody cared about. No, I know what about. you mean. The second Karate Kid was, it was heavily pumped because the first one was such a success. And again, Hollywood loves the movies of that genre, which is a Ostensibly a sports yeah. film, or coming and combined with a coming of age film. But Hollywood loves that genre because how much could Karate Kid cost in a budgetary sense? Yeah, it's just not very expensive to make a Karate Kid, and just like it's not super expensive to make a Rocky film. So these, the fact that you could release it and it'll make a hundred million dollars on a thirty million dollar budget. I'm talking about budgets from the '80s now, yeah, not yeah, currently. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying? Like if it could make that kind of money, guaranteed. It's a gimme. They could just keep making them. It doesn't because they're cheap. But once you get into more exp- expensive property like science fiction film, yeah, the special effects little, really add to the budget. Yeah, it gets I mean, a little bit weird. So to me, Karate Kid, like I don't love Karate Kid or anything, but that's a little bit of a failed property. But now it seems to have found new life with um, an Hulu show. Uh, Cobra Kai, which is yeah. a sequel to Karate Kid, and people seem to really love it. 
I haven't seen it yet, but I want to. Um, and I don't know. I mean, they all they all fail eventually. Uh, but uh, but again, Indy is my favorite. Star Trek is my favorite. And I got to give it to Rocky, man. Yeah. <laughs> I got to give it to Rocky. Just a sentimental favorite. I, um, like you said, the first two were actually good movies. And uh, the second two were just crowd-pleasing sure. movies. Sure. Yeah. Massive crowd-pleasing yeah. movies. And I actually have to give it to to Rocky Four a little bit because it is the one of the few franchises that got explicitly political. Yeah. That movie is so 80s to me. That it's, it's extremely jingoistic, but it but it does end on a weird consolatory note that really kind of almost you know imagines the end of the Cold War. It almost sure. says, "Hey, you know what? We're ready to yeah. cut this shit out." But I just mean everything about it, like from just the posters, from how like steroided up the actors are, like mm-hmm. you know, the fact that Russia's the bad guy. I mean, it's just such a that is an '80s movie. It's a super '80s movie. It's super jingoistic. It's uh, it's boneheaded. It's it's certainly the most boneheaded of the Rocky movies up to that point, yeah. probably ever. It's got a lovable quality. The clothes are hilarious. Yeah. You know, it, it really, it, it, it's funny. Like, it'd be interesting to, to have an audience in, like, 1976 watch the first Rocky movie, which is very optimistic and also somewhat jingoistic in a good way, I sure. think. Um, uh, it's definitely a 70s movie, though. It's... It's depressing, yeah. and it deals with these loser characters. It's drab. It's all of these things, and then cut, and then to have the same audience watch Rocky Four, which is colorful, loud, has musical numbers, yeah. and is just so over the top in every single way, so devoid of any reality or anything. And and some of the heart and some of the messages of the first movie are completely inverted in this one. There's still a like a shadow of the old Rocky, but really not so much. And it's it I would it's I'm just fascinated to imagine a reaction of the audience coming out of Rocky One and going into Rocky Four. Yeah. I mean we'll some, never know. some of my favorite I, I don't know if failed is the right term for it, but my favorite IP that people keep screwing up are the the great Movie monsters of Universal, like Dracula <laughs> and Frankenstein and the Wolfman. Yeah, yeah. Now they were, you know, you can argue they were kind of IP sure. back in the, back I in mean, the way back, like sure. in the 30s. For and sure. Things. But so Universal has held the rights to these movies. And, you know, there weren't, was there a Dracula movie in the 80s? I don't think, I don't think there was. There and I think, there. which just kind of goes to the in point. In 79, that, there was a Dracula movie that uh, I believe, I'm trying to remember who directed it. It was either... Richard Donner or John Badham, but it starred Frank Langella. Oh, it yeah. was a pretty high-end yeah. movie. It was like uh, Lawrence Olivier was in it. It was it was it was very high-end. It was like they were shooting, I think, for a franchise. With well, that that's one. the thing. It just kind of goes that Universal work. for decades now have like they know they have these characters and they keep thinking like surely we can do something with these. Yeah. And they somehow missed out on the whole '80s decade. They <laughs> like, missed the out on the '80s. And then since then, like you know, in the, in the 21st century, they've had these. You know, they tried to do a Van Helsing movie. They tried yeah. to shoot they tried on to these monsters. Well, and they've never had a lot of luck creating this like Marvel-esque modern world of these monster movies. The, yeah. uh, they've they've had more success when they did something like there was an Invisible Man remake where they let 
some some director and a screenwriter just kind of take things in an entirely new direction. Are right? you talking about the Elizabeth Moss one I that am just talking came about out? The Elizabeth There's Moss actually one, yeah. talk that the success of that film may actually reignite the universal Well, and monster. that's there's a Dracula film on the horizon and I'm blanking now on who's directing it. But the same that they're they're they finally they've thrown in the towel of like trying to make these monsters into superheroes and saying maybe we should just let somebody do like kind of a sideways version of it, right? And that'll be more interesting. And they were trying that, you know. The Mummy was a fairly successful franchise in the '90s, right? Yeah, with, with uh, Brendan Fraser, and and it was actually for a couple of films fairly decent. And they they that was a that was definitely an IP that that was the only IP that worked for them because it was such a vague concept. Yeah. Problem with Dracula is it's too specific. Dracula is yeah. too big a character within the story, uh, so it's hard to get a tangential like if. People have done it. And again, Dracula's been done to death. They just had a, a BBC one uh, that the Sherlock guys did. Sure. And well, I'm not talking even about specific Dracula movies or even specific Frankenstein movies, but just the idea of, like, the universal IP <laughs> of trying to get all these characters, like, you know, of that world. Right. But my other... So I don't know if this qualifies as failed IP, but one of my favorite adaptations of the 80s that... I wish I could be there when they greenlit this thing. Was uh, the Popeye movie <laughs> that uh, I I say I'm really excited when my son gets older and starts learning about like the famous directors of the '70s and all that. And I'm like, son, sit down. I want to tell you the story about how a coked out producer hired one of these '70s auteurs and decided that what they really needed to do is get a TV star and go make a live action movie of like a beloved but out of date cartoon. <laughs> and uh, and that's how we got Popeye. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Popeye is a quirky movie, of course, made by a great film film director, uh, Robert Altman. And uh, you know that movie. That's a kind of a love him or hate him thing, right? I mean, people. I remember seeing it because I was into comics and, yeah. and cartoons, and I'm like, "Ooh, Popeye movie, Robin Williams. This could be great." And then I was like, "I don't know." Everything the, about it's what weird. The hell am Everything I about at? it's weird. What am I looking at? Well, and there were a couple of sillier ones, like Flash Gordon. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis produced a crazy ass Flash Gordon movie that came out like in '80 or '81, and it is a camp classic. And that I think that could have been a fun franchise, but nobody seemed to care. That movie was too it was too meta for its time. That's another thing. Like some things are so meta that the 80s audience didn't get it. If I think if Flash Gordon came out like recently, I think it'd be more much more successful because it had a lot of money. It was visually scrumptious, even though some of the effects are really yeah. really bad by today's standards. But you you put it out with the right director and the right script. That could be that could be super fun, and I think that they're actually working on that property. That to me is like an attempt at franchise that didn't work. But Conan are... the Barbarian, perfect IP. Yeah, perfect IP. But the genre is weird. It's very hard to get the tone right. I mean, so the first film got the tone right, the second one didn't, and the IP went down the toilet, and they haven't known what to do with it since. You know, but now of course we understand that if you get the tone right, you could end up with Game of Thrones. Yes. Uh, but but at that time, it was a lot of trial and error. I tell you, one of my like little em- emotional favorites is uh, the of a wannabe franchise is a little little smaller budget sci-fi film called The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. In the ah, yeah. I haven't seen it in forever. Sure. <laughs> I saw it recently, and it's charming. It's super low budget, but it's got a sense of humor. 
It's got a great cast. Peter Weller is the main character, but really it's the side characters that really make it good, and like Jeff Goldblum's in it, and Ellen Barkin, I mean, and and uh, and the villain is John Lithgow, and he's and like everybody's got a tongue in cheek. It's extremely meta, extremely. Um, and it's just cool. It's just it's just like a cool story, a fun ride. It's it's very lo-fi sci-fi for sure, but that that's what makes it charming. I wish they'd made more of those. The spirit of that movie somewhat lived in the RoboCop series, the RoboCop series, which we didn't really get into too much in our sci-fi conversation. Has to be mentioned. Like, RoboCop, I could argue, despite the fact that they've. Uh... See, that's it. Does it count as failed IP just because I only like one of the movies? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a failed IP. The first film is good, and the second film is just not as good, yeah. you know, even though it's not horrible. But, but, but uh, the, the tone of the first film, the satirical tone that Paul Verhoeven brought, brought to that is, again, what made it a good film. And yeah, people not understanding the concept of, like, then turning the RoboCop character into just a straight-up kind of action hero. Yeah, that's or understanding the concept and just not being able to execute it as successfully. Also, the freshness element. This is, again, where we have to give props to Terminator 2, which is a 90s film, but nonetheless, like, Terminator 2 maybe because it's the same filmmaker, they got the tone of the first film and just kind of build on it. So it's arguably just as good as the first film with just a lot more money uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and a pretty cool story. Not as cool as the first one, but pretty cool. And, and it works. And then, you know, again, here's another IP that's just been floundering for years. They've been trying to reboot it time and time and time again, and it just hasn't worked. I thought the Christian Bale one was a legitimate attempt to reboot that franchise and could have gone somewhere. Yeah, they, uh, Kuroko, or I always pronounce it wrong, but the studio that had it, you know, they put the, uh, they tried to sell the franchise. I guess they did a while ago. And I remember uh, a joke that Joss Whedon of Buffy the Vampire fame, he took out an ad and he offered to pay $1,000 for the rights to the Terminator franchise. <laughs> That's three zeros, kids. <laughs> Hand me the reins for $1,000. Right. Well, I mean, a lot of people have felt that way, of course, you know, uh, that, that they could like, oh, we could do something with it. Well, but that's, that's part of the problem with some of the IP movies is that, like, something like Marvel or even, like, James Bond, I mean, that's the exception to the rule. And people keep chasing that dream that right. they have some, like, set of characters that they can just keep, you know, printing out and they can make eight movies with these characters right. and print money. But audiences lose interest, and then some of these characters just don't really warrant. I mean, you know, the, the Terminator world, it's they've certainly explored it a lot farther than I thought might be possible. But at the end of the day, it's like... You know, it's kind of this very simple story about it's, the machines yeah. took over and, it's like, how do we stop that? It's a simple and clever yeah. storyline that was done very well in the first Terminator film. Yeah. And, again, that's why I respect the second one so much is because they were literally able to build on that without subverting the first one. They just built on it. But, you know, once you start getting into the third one and the fourth one, how do you build on the clever time loop concept? Yeah. Uh, and they have not successfully done that. Unfortunately, um, so it's it's I don't know it it gets uh, it gets complicated. It's not easy to build a franchise. It's no, not. But they're no. all faltering, except the new set of franchises, which is 
obviously the Marvel films. And I believe Marvel films are on the verge of jumping a shark, personally. Uh, again, we don't know what's going to happen with cinema. It's very possible that going forward we may be watching movie premieres at home. Yeah. Uh, and um, that's, um, that's going to be a different animal because taking the communal experience of going to the movies out of the equation is, is, is weird. It's unprecedented. I mean, I sure hope it's not gone forever. I got high hopes for uh, for next year. I don't know about the fall, but I love the cinema. I love going to the cinema. I love going to see franchise films. I love going to see small independent films. It's uh, it's it's uh, it's my church. Yeah. And I would hate to see it close down forever. Yeah. So let's keep our fingers crossed. That that's not going to happen, but uh, that's all I got on the franchise. I know it's it's hard to wrap up. Much like IP films, they could go on forever with just diminishing quality. So maybe we should just uh, call a halt to this episode. <laughs> Quit after the first sequel. That's right. Well, that sounds good to me, Steve. So uh, we'll say goodbye till the next time. I'm Andre Shane. I'm Steve Haskin. We're film driven. Bye. <laughs>